why? Why would anybody go on a diet if they knew that dieting was so damaging? The thing is, they don't. And we have to educate people as to how damaging it is to the body and to the mind. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Hello and wow. Today we got to interview Elise Resch. If you don't know her, her bio is in the show notes, and instead of spending a long time going through that, suffice it to say that it's so refreshing to see someone who is as accomplished as she is and to hear her be so open and vulnerable about her journey towards becoming the eating disorder professional that she is. Her nuggets for us as professionals today include how she knew she had eating problems but was missed by a therapist who said she was okay because A, she wasn't vomiting, and B, because she, quote, looked okay. How she wants everyone who wants to conceive and thinks it's a good idea to go on a restrictive diet to lose weight, that restrictive eating can cause infertility. And how it's important in her journey to infuse herself regularly with other professionals. Finally, addressing the criticism that intuitive eating can't be used for eating disorders. And in the show notes, I've cross-referenced Christy Harrison's Food Psych podcast recording for more information about using intuitive eating for eating disorders. Her new food journal is coming out with a book signing this weekend in June if you are near L.A. or looking for a good reason to visit. And although this journal and the intuitive eating program is designed originally for consumers, this is a call from me to all professionals to do our own work through practicing intuitive eating in our own lives. The book signing is Saturday, June 12th at 1230, and the link to sign up is in the show notes. Well, hello, Elise. Hello, Beth. How are you? Good. It is so good to have you here. We are really excited and have a lot to ask you and a lot to learn from you. So Abby, you go ahead and get started. Yes. Okay. Just wanted to highlight for anybody listening. This is got to be one of our top episodes to listen to. Elise is incredible. She's the queen of non-diet culture and so many awesome things. So I'm thankful for everybody tuning in. And Elise, thank you for being here today. We're so excited. My first little question for you, mountains or beach? Oh, beach. (laughs) I'm a Pisces. Oh, okay. It makes sense. Yes. (laughs) And you live right close to the beach, right? I live in Santa Monica. Now, I don't swim well. I just love looking at the ocean. So, And the the warm weather. It's very nice. Yes. (laughs) Breakfast or dinner? Breakfast. That was fast. Yeah. yeah. What's your ideal breakfast? I have different things. I eat different mornings. So 
which is my favorite. Sometimes, well, I think the favorite is scrambled eggs with cheese and and waffles. A little sweet and salty combo. Yeah, and I like avocado toast with some yogurt, and I always have some kind of protein. And yeah, exactly. There's the (laughs) dietitian. The dietitian in you. I love a really big breakfast, and it holds me because I work, you know, for a lot of hours, and it holds me till lunch, and that's really great. Another favorite breakfast is. Probably you don't even know it. It's cooked millet with butter and cottage cheese on it. Millets mm-hmm. and grain, so yummy. And always lots of fruit and always a glass of milk. Yes. I was wondering when you said breakfast so quickly that if, was it the actual food or just, I could tell too, moving into some intuitive eating thinking is the satisfaction factor. It's like, it carries me through. It's satisfying to my body, but it has to be satisfying to my mouth, too. Mm-hmm. I had a terrible experience on Sunday morning going out with friends for one of the first times at a restaurant that took forever to seat us and forever to bring the food. And it was so bad and was so unsatisfying. Mm. So it's disappointing mm-hmm. when it is, but there's so it's many more meals. You know? <laughs> We've got, I, yes, and I, I, um, I'll ask the, last, the next question, but the final one, audiobook or paper book? Oh, I always read books. I've got so many books around my house in real books, hardcover mostly, some paperback. I can't, I can't do it on, well, I actually, you asked audio or, but there's also that middle one, the Kindle or that, that's what I can't do. I listen to audio books when I'm getting ready in the morning or in the car. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. But reading, I just want to hold my books and read them. There is some kind of advantage, though, to audiobooks. I'm maybe going off on a tangent, but when I'm listening to an audiobook and I like the narrator, I kind of feel like I'm seeing the characters Mm -hmm. sometimes more. Yeah. I don't like the narrator. It's, you know, no go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I have recently become an intuitive eating counselor and I was listening to, you know, we get to know a little bit about you as we're listening to some of the things. And I definitely was able to listen to the audio in my car or on walks, or I think that you said that sometimes when you're working out, you'll do something on the treadmill or watch a movie or something. I watch TV. You watch TV. Why, well, why do I get on it or the elliptical? Why do I get on it? Exactly. Watch a TV show. Exactly. I love Nancy Drew. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Okay, well, I'm going to take you back and hopefully this is not too traumatizing. And I know it's been a while to ask this question though, but back to exam day, you're a registered dietitian. What do you remember? Was it a number two pencil or a keyboard? Pencil. This is 40 years ago. Exactly. <laughs> right. And I didn't think I was going to pass it because I couldn't answer half of the questions. <laughs> there was, I did my master's thesis on pregnancy and adolescence, and there were several questions in that area, and not one answer was correct. I mean, I don't know whether, was I, whether I knew too much or whether they just no. I did pass, and I think I passed pretty well, but I was... I was thinking, I'm not going to pass this damn test. It's tricky the way they word things. It makes you doubt yourself. Yes. Well, and we, Abby, this is the second person that we've talked to who also knew more than what the test question was. Right. And so that really throws you off because you're, you're like, I, I know how I should be answering it, but this is probably the way they expect me to answer it. So um, tell us about your, how you got into the field of, 
either dietetics and then definitely into eating disorders sure. because we want all professionals new um, who have been around for a while to really hear your evolution. Sure. So my whole life, I knew that I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. That was all I wanted to do. I knew it every day. And my father would fight with me and say, why do you want to do that? You could run a company or something. It's like, no, I want to be an elementary school teacher. So in college, I majored in English minor. No, I didn't. I majored in sociology and minored in English and took all the elementary education courses along the way. And then I taught school for four years right out of college. And then I had my son and I took a couple of years off. And then I thought, I, I want to do something with my life. I need to go back to work and I don't know what I want to do. I don't want to go back to elementary teaching because all of that energy in me for kids was going into my son. And I was sitting around. I, I'll remember, I remember the day very well. I was sitting around with a group of uh, moms as the kids were playing in a play date. And I said, I don't know what to do. I want to go back to school. And one of them said, well, you're so into nutrition. And now I'll tell you how I was into nutrition. So why don't you become a nutritionist? I was um, married to someone and um, I had wonderful in-laws who were all kind of extra into nutrition. I would say at this point it was orthorexia, although I didn't know the mm -hmm. term then. And so I was brought into that family and it was all about, you know, what's the best thing to eat. And so it seemed like a natural you know, as these uh, women were saying, become a nutritionist, it just seemed natural. And I will say I was enrolled in graduate school within the next couple of months. And I, so I began graduate school at 30 and I did it very slowly because my son was a little boy and uh, had no intention of going into the field of what we now dreadedly call weight management, weight control. I had no interest in that. I uh, was trained at a facility uh, affiliated with Children's Hospital. And it was a called the University Affiliated Program uh, Center for Child Development and Developmental Disabilities. And I was I was the one trainee from in the nutrition department. And I got to work with pretty much every health discipline that was represented there, we would rotate. It was really great. I got to work with the psychologist and with the, um, the psychiatrist and the social worker. And, and I really learned a lot then about counseling, which I don't think that very many people get to learn about in their training, very many dietitians. Right. And so I just thought, well, I'm going to um, go into the field of developmental disabilities and help kids with this. I was running the feeding clinic at Children's then. And guess what? It didn't happen because I was vendored by the regional centers of California and they did not want to pay any kind of reasonable fee for me to take their clients. I mean, it was just really unfortunate and they didn't send me very many people, but the clients I did get were coming from physicians who were very weight oriented and would send me people who had diabetes or high blood pressure, or high cholesterol, and it was always help them lose weight. And I was, I didn't want to do that. I didn't know what to do though. I felt so, uh, I felt as if I was really drowning, not knowing how to swim. I mean, it was just a terrible time for me, but what did I do? I tried to help them, you know, look at what they ate, be the good dietitian that I learned in, you know, in graduate school, give them a meal plan, which horrifies me now. And, uh, then some people did come and want to lose weight. Now, 
I want to tell you this year, this is 1982, 1983. We're talking about a long time ago, well before my consciousness was raised, well before anything was talked about in terms of diet culture or weight stigma. It just, I wasn't aware of it, but I still didn't feel okay in my gut about doing this. And I probably didn't feel okay about it because I'd had an eating disorder of my own uh, prior to, yes, prior to this time, probably my late 20s, early 30s, I was restricting and binging and restricting and binging and going on diets because that's what you did. That's what everybody did. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who think that's what everybody does now, which is trying to change the world in that. So I, I'm pretty sure that without thinking it through, it was more of a gut feeling that I didn't ex- enjoy that experience and I didn't want to do that you know, with other people. I didn't want to help them diet because it was a pretty awful experience. And by the time I was counseling people, I was actually out of the eating disorder, going to graduate school, learning the science, starting therapy psychotherapy. Oh my goodness. Psychotherapy for 40 years. I mean, it's the best. And so uh, I, ironically, I, my very first therapist, I said to her, do you think I have an eating problem? That's what I called it because we didn't even know the term eating disorder then. And she said, well, do you throw up? And I said, no. And she said, oh, you look fine. She didn't even talk to me about what I was eating. Was I eating enough? And actually, to be frank, I, during that period of dieting, I tried to have another child and I couldn't get pregnant. And it was only until I got into graduate school that I understood that the restrictive eating that I was doing was like, oh, I'll just lose, lose a few pounds before I get pregnant again. Mm-hmm. And I was losing weight. I was under eating and made me infertile. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying this publicly to anybody who is, who might hear this who thinks it's a good idea to lose, to try to lose weight (laughs) for any reason, but especially if you're trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. So in any case, here I am in the early days of my practice, not liking what I was doing, not knowing what else I was going to do, not knowing that there was any other way. And then some of the early, I think early nineties, some of the non-diet approach was being written about. I read uh, Susie Orbach's Fat is a Feminist Issue. I read Janine Roth. I read um, Hirschman and Munter's Overcoming Overeating. And none of these people was a, a nutritionist or dietitian. They were either lay people or psycho- psychotherapists. But the one theme within all these books was, if you restrict, you feel deprived. If you're deprived, you're going to binge. And that really resonated with me. What didn't resonate with me right off the bat was, eat whatever you want, whenever you want. And it was like, whoa, I'm a dietitian. I know what foods are healthy and what foods, you know, and this is all in quotes, by the way, for anybody who's listening. How can I tell people to eat whatever they want? But because I was so interested in psychology and understood the depths of psychological, you know, foundation for why these diets weren't working for people and why they were leading to binging. It helped me overcome my concern about telling people they could eat whatever they wanted. And I thought I'm going to write a book. So I sat down at my computer and I wrote out some chapter headings and I was think I was going to call the book The Tao of Eating, T-A-O, The Tao, because I had read, my son had told me to read this book called The Tao of Pooh, Winnie the Pooh, Taoism through the <laughs> through Winnie the Pooh. And I thought, oh, eating has to be something that you're not trying to control. That's what the basis of that book was. Something Taoism is you have to let it happen the way it happens. 
Well, that obviously wasn't the title. And in any case, my co-author, Evelyn Tripoli, was uh, at my office once a week. She lives an hour away from me, and she was coming up to L.A. to see a couple of clients in L.A., and I had some space, and she, so she was in my office once a week. And one day I saw her in the hallway, and she seemed to be upset about something, and I said, Evelyn, what's the matter? And she said, I'm so frustrated. I'm trying to write this book with a psychologist, and she doesn't know how to write. And I had this just moment, this, you know, thunder burst or whatever. And I, and I immediately said, I'll write it with you because what I got from that was that it was the psych that Evelyn was writing whatever part she was going to write. And the psychologist was going to be writing about the psychology of it. And since I was so not that I wasn't, was a psychologist, but I was so interested in the psychology of eating that I just grabbed onto that. And that's how it started. And we she had been thinking about obviously writing a book similar with a similar nature and we collaborated and that was the beginning of intuitive eating. And that was, well, when we talked to each other about it it was 1993, the book came out in 1995. Okay. Long time ago. I was going to ask you, that was a long time ago. Now you have more editions. Oh, wow. Yes. We're in the fourth edition that came out last year and each edition is you know it's an evolution really i wouldn't say that the second edition was it because it was really a replication of the first edition but i wrote a chapter on eating disorders and tacked it on to it but by the third edition we were really evolving in our thinking and boy by the fourth edition we look back at the third edition and go how did we write that you know and we have self-compassion for the fact that you only know what you know when mm-hmm. you know it. And there were a lot of things that we found in the third edition that we didn't like. And I'm sure, oh, please, <laughs> I've been writing books for six, seven years straight now. I can't even think of another edition, but <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's a little frightening. But yeah, so anyway, each edition, you know, evolved from the last edition. And then there's workbooks, there's the intuitive eating workbook that Evelyn and I wrote. And then there's the intuitive eating workbook for teens that I wrote, which I absolutely love. Me too. Um, and one of the reasons I love it, besides the fact that I wrote it, was that I directed it not only toward actual teens, adolescents, but to the teen in each of us. And I am a very strong believer in inner child work and believe that each of us, no matter what age, holds those feelings that that toddler slash teen, because they're about the same mentality. And I have found that so many adults read this book and they go, well, yeah, I feel that way. That's how I feel. And it's that it's their teen in them. That's feeling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have it too and use it for adults. And I use it I mean, it is. And I love that part. And I just can't get enough, Elise, of your talk about the autonomous self and the the different stages of development that are within each of us. And really, that's the basis to me for why diets don't work is, you know, people talk about the deprivation and diets. And that's absolutely true. I don't deny that there's deprivation. But I think the driving force of why diets don't work is that people don't like to be told what to do. And ultimately, you know, they get on the diet, they're driven by diet culture to believe that their life will be better if they lose weight. So that's why they get on the diets and they mm-hmm. feel great at first because everything's controlled for them and they feel safe until they hit that point where it, that that drive for autonomy, that striving for autonomy that is part of a healthy ego that starts at toddlerhood 
reemerges big time in teen years and is with us our whole lives. At some point, they just don't want to do what somebody else is telling them to do. And they think that they're failures. They think they're, you know, I just can't stay on that diet. What's wrong with me? And there's nothing wrong with them. They just have to have healthy egos that, Mm -hmm. you know. I, I love that too. When I when you added the piece on eating disorders, how did that evolve? One of my first, well, I didn't mention this. I was working at Children's Hospital after I, in that same you know clinic, working as a nutritionist for a while after I got, after I passed the RD exam. And then I started my private practice. And soon after that, maybe within two years, I was asked to be the nutritionist on an eating disorder unit in Beverly Hills, California. That program hasn't been there for a long time. The hospital isn't even there anymore. And I think here's really what I think happened was because I'd had my own eating disorder, I was, you know, interested in eating disorders. And my supervisor at Children's Hospital, who became a good friend of mine, knew I was interested in eating disorders. And she was also working in the program at UCLA in their eating disorder clinic. And she invited me to come every Friday morning to their team meetings, just as a guest. And I went for two years, every single Friday morning, and learned. I learned so much. And so I believe that, you know, everything feels very spiritual to me, but I believe that my own eating disorder led me to being interested in helping people with eating disorders, led me to train as best as I could two years every week to learn what was going on in that program. And so I was already treating people with eating disorders at that point from my own history and from my own philosophy around it. So writing that chapter, it, I mean, nothing, no writing is actually easy, but it just flowed. So Um, that group that you were with, was it a multidisciplinary group? It was, it was the adolescent eating disorder program at UCLA. And how amazing that they had team meetings every single week. I, and, and that they allowed you to be at I think that they point. ignored me. I don't, I don't think they knew who I was. I don't think they bothered me. The person who ran the program, I've known him for many, many years, and I don't even think he knows who I am at this point. So I think I was kind of I think I was kind of ignored and and you know, just kind of I don't know, <laughs> allowed to sit there. Although I do remember being invited to some big I don't know if it was a conference seminar that they were having. And there was a, a physician. Gosh, I haven't thought about this in so long. And she walked up to me and she said, who are you? And I told her, and she said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I've been invited by this person who was my supervisor. Well, you can't be here. You have to leave. That was, that was very, wow. and I had to leave. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Give me a nice person. <laughs> So this is like the uh, the beginnings of a supervision, even though, because in your supervision groups, you also, for those who don't speak up, there's still passive learning. Now, I won't say passive, it can be very active because you can be taking notes and it's just learning from other people's experiences. You know where that came from? One of my therapists, my psychoanalyst, my Kleinian analyst, I went to her crying one morning after I'd gone to some book club meeting the night before with a group of women that were so smart and educated in certain areas that were focused on in that group. And I sat there without being able to say anything. And I felt very 
stupid, actually. Mm -hmm. And I went to her the next morning, was crying. I said, I don't know what's wrong with me. You know, they're so much smarter than I am. And she was, she was wonderful and was like, well, they've had different life experiences. They've learned things that you haven't learned. And the fact that you could just sit there and listen and take in is so important. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you picked up on that, you know, because that's how I feel about the, the supervision group that I run, which is there's some people that just aren't ready to speak up, but they are learning every week. Absolutely. Yeah, right. I think I interrupted you as you were going to, you were talking about different workbooks. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's all stream of consciousness, isn't it? So yes. So there's the intuitive workbook that Evelyn and I wrote. Then there's my teen workbook that I wrote. And then what just came out this week is the intuitive eating journal, your guided journey to a healthy relationship with food or something like that. I don't have it in front of me, so I never remember. And then also the intuitive eating card deck and that Evelyn and I did together. So, so much fun. I asked my editor when we were having a meeting, I said, so are we going to do a calendar next? Do you think? <laughs> what's, the, what's the next step? I think the card deck is such a good idea. Fun. I, I describe it to people as like tarot cards. You know, mm-hmm. you just you deal them out or you pick a card, and that's the card that you are meant to, you know, think about and work on. Yeah. And, and can you explain a little bit about what's on them? It's your the principles of intuitive eating, right? Well, so there are 50 cards and there are 10 principles. And so it's divided up. I'm not exactly sure if it's five per pr- principle or whether one or two have more and one or two have less, but it's essentially several cards per principle. And the principles are distilled pretty, you know, distilled down to fit on a little card. And it's, it's wonderful, I think, for people who have a hard time digging into a deep, dense book, because this last edition of Intuitive Eating is very dense, and they can have an approach where it speaks to them in a way that maybe would be fun, and they can learn all about intuitive eating that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, Elise, it's really interesting to hear where you started in that, you know, quote unquote, weight management position. Because it is exactly the same still. I feel like nothing has changed from what you just explained to what I'm seeing as a new dietitian now. And what I really want this podcast to bring and kind of like my own life goal is, can we all as healthcare professionals just get on the same page that weight loss is not a cure-all? And I think, well, I don't think I know that a lot of healthcare professionals see different diets out there and think, oh, this is this is it. And then we'll prescribe that and say, if you know, if you do this, this is gonna weight loss and blah, 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 and send them to dietitians. Can you explain a little bit why that's actually so damaging? Because we need to make steps towards a difference here. Well, first of all, it's the premise that health is equated with weight. And that is not true. Studies show that there's far more damage to health by the uh, social determinants of health, people's access to food, access to education, access to healthcare, access to socialization. How much stigmatization do they have in different areas of their lives? And weight stigma is a piece of this. And there's so much damage done to people who are stigmatized because they're stressed all the time. Mm -hmm. They're stressed that they're not good enough. They're stressed that people are going to judge them. And that stress raises cortisol levels. And cortisol is known to have, you know, a damaging effect on health. So I think, first of all, we have to understand that 
one's weight does not equate to one's health. And in fact, the whole movement of health at every size understands deeply that, you know, weight is not a parameter of health and that no matter what your size or shape or age, you can do the self-care that it takes to put you at the best level of optimal health. And that's mind, body, soul health. That's not just the body. It's the whole piece. So, so it's that piece. But the other piece of it is that diets simply don't work. I mean, they literally don't work. 98% of people who go on diets and lose weight gain the weight back. And two-thirds of them gain even more weight back. And there's so much damage to the body, but there's so much damage to the mind in dieting. And the whole process of dieting is actually, to me, an oppression. I think it, it promotes weight stigma. It continues that narrative that you're not good enough unless you're a certain culturally thin ideal. And that is so damaging. So why? Why would anybody go on a diet if they knew that dieting was so damaging? The thing is, they don't. And we have to educate people as to how damaging it is to the body and to the mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm answering your question. But <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. And I guess kind of another question off of that is, with all of the science we have around how diets don't work, why do you think we're still prescribing it in healthcare? Well, because we're very backwards. Because uh, I will say in a general sense, a lot of the medical community, you know, the medical model is very fat phobic. I mean, they even... I don't know how they did it, but they made a quote unquote obesity. I don't like that word. They made it a disease, even though, by the way, most of the doctors didn't want that to be, but it got pushed through probably by the pharmaceutical industry that can, you know, try to sell diet pills or something. I don't know, but it's this, this belief, no matter where you go, you're hearing doctors say, well, of course, of course, you know, that you know, you've got to lose weight, regardless of what a person walks in with, whatever someone was talking about walking in with a, um, I think, a wrist that was strained or sprained, and the doctor said, you need to lose weight. And by the way, that's another piece of why weight stigma is so dangerous is a lot of people will not go to the doctor, because they're so scared of the doctor's judgment. They're so scared of the doctor just saying to them, well, go out and lose 25 pounds, Mm -hmm. as if they haven't been trying to do that for most of their lives, because they've been programmed since the pediatrician told their mother that they were too big. Mm -hmm. So, So, and then the dietetic industry, for some reason, is just stuck in this traditional well, not everybody, obviously, there's many of us who are forward, you know, move forward, but so many of the schools are still teaching the same old, you know, diabetic exchange for setting up meal plans. There are some places, I can't name them right now, but I know that are teaching intuitive eating, that intuitive eating is a required text for some of the courses. It's starting to open up some. So, but I think, you know, I think there's so, well, am I going to get political now? A little bit. <laughs> I mean, I I think it has a lot to do with the patriarchy and white supremacy and uh, control, trying to, you know, control mostly women. It's not just women. Obviously, all genders are affected by this, but there's a, a control issue there, and just the way we see in our country that people are really scared to let go of their power. Mm-hmm. And what you mentioned about you know, hearing it from the pediatrician, that's what gets me the most is when I get a pediatric that comes in and mom says, you know, the pediatrician says they need to lose weight. Their BMI is obese. You know, how, what are you going to do to help them lose weight? And I'm like, oh, 
you know, that's the beginning. Sorry, I, that's the beginning for many of my clients of their eating disorder. It's the root of their eating disorder. So here's this. Uh, let's talk about a little girl. As I said, it could be all genders, but this little girl goes in there. She's nine, ten years old, and she's starting to gain weight, gain fat, so that she can make the hormones to go into menarche to get her first period. Little girls can gain well, I won't use numbers here, but a sufficient amount, you know, significant amount of weight to get that first period. And the doctor looks at it, isn't educated in that. And I don't know why they're not. And they say, you know, she's eating too much. And then mom gets scared because mom wants to be a good mom. If she's mom, could be dad, could be a you know caregiver, but often it's mom who walks in with the child and then says, oh no, what am I going to do? And starts saying to her, no, one cookie's enough. Or maybe we'll only have dessert once a week or, and it all begins there. I would say 95% of my clients, their eating disorders began because a parent, a grandparent or a doctor told them what to eat or what not to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I worked in a children's hospital too for eating disorders and medical stabilization. It was an outpatient program, but you know, your experience, even all the way back to your master's and your pregnancy and adolescence studies is when I ask my clients, that's one of the questions, when did you first have an awareness of this, your body or your weight being a problem? And do you know, I wonder what your Yours would be, Elise, if you had to guess, again, an age. Well, I have actually a very interesting history. I didn't know anything. Are you talking about me personally? Um, Your clients. But if, yeah, I was thinking in general, your clients. Yeah. When they started, when their eating disorders began, is that what you're... Yeah, yeah. When they have first had an awareness that their their body was bad or their weight was bad or... they were That they were told that. You know, it's told usually that. very early adolescence, often even pre-puberty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking eight is... I just had a string of, of people and so that kind of... It's not evidence-based, but that doesn't matter. So yeah, this starts really young. And then there was the outroar of, of WW and, and lowering the age over and over again of oh. having kids um, taking pictures and having coaches and telling them that um, to put applesauce on their toast instead of, or smashed banana instead of butter or avocado or something. So it's just, it's bad. Well, and think about it. I mean, Here's these kids from a psychological level level are being damaged, but from a physiological level, kids should not be losing weight. They need nourishment. They need to grow. They need their brains to work, to be able to go to school. They need the energy to, you know, play and do some sports. And it's, it's horrifying. It's really a crime. So this whole you know, we were mentioning how we were trained, being trained in nutrition counseling, also in therapy and nutrition and what we're taught. And and Abby has shared with us that at least that there's some motivational interviewing and some things that are being taught in, in um, her undergrad programs oh. currently. And I am allowed to say today that the there's a weight inclusive toolkit committee for dietitians that will be coming out in the next two to three years. So there's a task force that's been put together and it will be a required portion of, of dietetics education. Wow. Yay! Yeah, that's incredible. Oh, that's yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Right. So we're starting academy. to head in the right direction. Yeah. Through the Academy of Nutrition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Yep. And see the, yeah, the, 
in yeah. depth, I think. Yeah. So, and then also I'm just going to get back to intuitive eating as part of, you know, this is, this is a podcast really for professionals at any level entry all the way through about eating disorders and their care and nutrition. And you've written that portion in your book mm-hmm. and it is a required reading for anyone who wants to be a certified eating disorder specialist. But I, I, just feel like it would be so amazing to have in any course. So super important. And like you said, it's dense. It yes. could, we could have an, a topic, the whole, this whole podcast, just being about medical, medical, I don't want to call it malpractice, but you mentioned using the word obesity or overweight and those oh. terms are so damaging. And, and there's a lot of organizations that still use it and still don't see anything wrong with it. And it just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It, it's very upsetting. Mm-hmm. It, it would. Can you imagine how incredible it would be if <laughs> a patient went in to see their doctor and they prescribed them with an intuitive eating type of <laughs> diet, quote unquote? We would be in a much better place. They just hand them your book. You know, it's so interesting. I happened to have a new gynecologist and I went, and she was very young. I think she's 12. That's what she looks like. (laughs) uh, She made some comment. She was a very lovely person and made some comment that felt fat phobic to me, not directed at me, but just, you know, general. And I stopped her and I pointed it out and I talked to her about it and I asked her if she'd ever heard of intuitive eating or health at every size. And she said she had not. I mean, they're certainly not teaching it in the medical schools. And I started to really give her a bit of an education about, you know, the the damage that could be done by, by thinking that way. And so we were done with the appointment and I said, you know, I think I have a copy of my book in my trunk. I'm going to go down to the parking lot, which was quite far and get it and bring it back to you. And when I came back up, she was on her computer looking up intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is a win. I mean, this is someone she had no idea. It wasn't like she was trying to do harm. She had no idea. Mm -hmm. Clearly someone who had never had any issues, you know, herself and Mm -hmm. just was oblivious. And now it's going to, it's going to, I hope, impact how she talks to her patients. And how shocked she has to be to realize that the intuitive eating book has over 500,000 copies sold. Like it, yeah, I mean, it's huge. It's funny that you mentioned that I just got an email from my gynecologist office, uh, introducing a new weight loss program and suggesting Uh, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And on mine, I, you know, I only go once a year or so. And the last time I was there, she asked what I did and I shared with her and she's like, yeah, but so many people, they really just like flaunt it. And like, I don't care if I'm fat. And I just, I, I was stymied. And so this is something that I'm preparing for my return visit on how I can help her. I could give her an intuitive eating book. I could also think of a lot of things that I could say without that we've got to bring them on board it's uh-huh. you know I think there are some things on the health at every size or the ASDA website yes that there are health sheets I think I think there are things you can download and bring to the doctor yes and I want that to go into the show notes too I mean the ASDA Mm-hmm. Health sheets are really helpful because they talk about, let's just say blood pressure or diabetes and how doctors automatically prescribe that, a uh, weight loss, weight loss, weight loss. And so the ASDA health sheets are well-researched and they show why weight loss isn't actually the best yes. 
and why we just fall into thinking that the earth is flat and that we we just prescribe weight loss without anything and it causes so much damage. So yeah, I would I want to give a shout out to them. Thank you Elise for bringing yeah. that up. Okay, so tell me a, a little more about your workbook, your, your newest one. How did that uh, come the, about? The journal. The journal. The journal. journal. Okay, yes. the journal making journal. Thank you. Uh, I happen to have this very wonderful acquisition editor at New Harbinger Press, and he is very creative and uh, very dedicated to intuitive eating. And so after the, okay, after the intuitive eating workbook was written and after my team workbook was written, he said, I think it would be a great idea to do an intuitive eating journal. So it's different than the workbook. The workbook has very specific activities. You know, it's got education in that, of course, and then activities with a couple lines to put the answer in. A journal is different. It helps people really go deeply inside and explore and reflect. And so there's, there are, you know, a couple of pages of room for writing after someone gets prompted from learning. I mean, I, I wrote a short introduction on each each of the principles just to, a short and concise, but really specific in terms of what I wanted to get out there to help people understand what each of the principles was about. And then prompts throughout to think about it, think about you know, how you felt years ago when you went on a diet. Think about how you felt when you fell off the diet. You know, imagine what a life would be like if you never dieted again. Mm-hmm. So reflection. And so that's what the journal, the journal is about. Yes, and the journal. I imagine like it's like having Elise right there with you and all of her years of her own personal experience, as well as all of your clients poured into each thought and each prompt for that journal. So what do you, yeah, I was going to say, what do you tell people who think they're too busy for something like that? Well, what I say is get the audio book of intuitive eating. There you go. (laughs) You've got to drive. You could sometimes take a walk. Just listen. See Mm -hmm. if it breaks you. Mm -hmm. I had an interesting experience with the audio book. We had, Evelyn and I had hoped that we could be the readers for the book, but Brookstone, who who bought the audio rights, didn't want us to, but they did allow us for me, well, for us to read the introduction and the foreword. And so I read the foreword and then, Evelyn read the introduction. As I said, we don't live in the same place, so it's in different mm-hmm. studios. And then when the CDs first, they're on CD as well as, you know, Audible. When they came out, I was so excited. I still have a CD player in my car. And I stuck <laughs> the CD in there. And it was the reader who was reading the rest of the book who was reading the foreword. And I was really upset. I had spent a lot of time on it. And they fixed it within a few days. So That's in good. any case, so mm-hmm. there's... My voice in the in the foreword and Evelyn's voice in the introduction, and then this reader, who, whom I hope people will like, the audio book for the third edition. I couldn't listen to it. I thought the the reader was just the narrator, mm. just boring as could be. So we had a few choices, and we picked the best of the choices. It would have been better if it had been the two of us. I know. Well, you have the CD that is the two of you. It's not the reading of the book. It's different. Yes. And so that's on CD, but you can also get it through an MP3. Yeah, that that one is a discussion format between Evelyn yeah, and Evelyn. Yeah, yeah. So it was probably one of the hardest weekends of my life doing that recording. It took a whole weekend, and I went in there with a whole script, and the producer said to me, throw that away. I don't want you reading anything. Yeah. I just want you talking. I was like, oh, no. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's scary. 
Yeah, I mean, and we were talking earlier about audiobook, and that is just something that you bits and pieces. You the yes. intuitive eating book itself and the workbook, they're very dense, like you said. And so the these card decks and the if you just want to dab your toe into the water, then that's a great place to start. Which which actually speaks to the diversity of people in you know in so many ways, but the diversity of learners. You know, there are some people who don't have the patience to sit down and read a long book. For sure. Others who don't want to listen, but they will they will read a book. And others, I think, who are going to be very attracted to those cards because I think they're just so fun. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the cards, I was when I saw that on your Instagram, I was the instantly popped up in my mind. This has to be so great for a kid or a pediatric who maybe has some disordered eating habits. Would you, could you see it in that setting? You mean the pediatrician themselves or do you mean? No, like, like parents and kid. Yes. I mean, it'd be great to have it in a waiting room, wouldn't it? And they could start going through it and looking at it. That's smart. (laughs) This is so great. So, for eating disorders, is there something that you want? Is there, are there any criticisms of intuitive eating for eating disorders? <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, one of my bugaboos, one of the things that really annoys me is that belief in some places and some facilities that you can't do intuitive eating with somebody who is undernourished. And I have said this from the beginning, intuitive eating is not just about hunger and fullness. Intuitive eating is a you know, broad philosophy, a way of changing one's relationship with food. And I have worked with some people who have pretty, pretty severe anorexia and they're able to start making peace with food, you know, start, you know, feeling that they're, that all, that foods aren't dangerous, you know, that they can start Mm. eating what they want to eat. They start looking at how they talk to themselves in terms of respecting their bodies. They look at, different ways for them to self-care and self-compassion and gratitude. There's, you know, intuitive eating is a very rich book with very, so many aspects to it, not just hunger and fullness. So I try to educate people that just don't think, don't make it reductionist. That's just all about hunger and fullness. And in fact, even someone who's in a very restrictive place gets hungry sometimes. And so what I have said to clients and actually in the, in the intuitive eating, you know, text in the in the the big book, I describe treatment I ha- did with one of my clients many years ago who had who had anorexia, and I said to her, we, we signed, I had to sign a contract, and I said to her, in terms of hunger, if you feel hunger, go for it. I mean, that's a signal that your body's giving you, but don't tell me that you're never hungry. And intuitive eating says only eat when you're hungry, because then this contract's broken because mm-hmm. Your stomach emptying is very slowed down. You're not going to, you're going to feel full all the time. So you just got to eat anyway. (laughs) So the hunger, sometimes that was an accurate signal, but not always. And fullness is pretty much never an accurate signal until someone's fully renourished. And the nutritional rehab process is going to be more guided in the beginning if someone's severely undernourished and then can move into different phases of intuitive eating. It is guided. However, I yeah, I know. I'm just going to say this, and I don't know what people are going to think, but I do not believe in exchanges for people mm. who are, you know, healing from a restrictive disorder. I, because what happens is 
those exchanges get stuck in their minds. There's a lot of obsessive compulsive behavior that may be connected to being undernourished or may just mm-hmm. be something that someone has. And they start thinking that if they don't eat exactly the exchanges that they're told. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I, I remember a, a dear client of mine who had been in a residential treatment who had come out, she was fully nourished. She had really no symptoms of eating disorder at all. And one day she started to panic and she said, I think I have to go back to my meal plan. And in fact, her therapist called me and said, put her on her meal plan. I said, absolutely not. I'm kind of a maverick. I said, absolutely (laughs) not. I am not putting her on the meal plan. What that message to her is, would would be, I should say, is that I don't trust that she knows how to eat. And I said to her, you know how to eat. You know exactly how to eat. So go out there and eat. And within, you know, a day or two, she was fine and she was, you know, back on it. But I have seen so many people come out of treatments that are focused, even some of them where they they weigh and measure food, Mm -hmm. numbers in their heads. And they may be fully, you know, uh, healed in terms of physiology, but their minds are still trapped in their eating disorder. And I have to do a lot of, you know, reverse work to get that out of there. It's really hard. Sure is. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are going away from exchanges because of that. We've learned even with diabetes, it's, it, it can be, well, anyway, I won't, like you said, I won't get into that because everyone has what works for them and it is meeting their clients where they are and, and recognizing some of the reactions that they have. If you mention um, any kind of a plan that they've tried before or that's been pushed on them before um, this one, this one pulls out full autonomy. It puts, puts right. And, you know, I've had people who, come out of, you know, healing with a very structured meal plan and they're terrified to change anything. Yeah. Feel like they have to do it a hundred percent. Yeah. They have to have ex- the exact amount of, you know, protein or carbs or fat or whatever it is. And it's, that's just not the real world, you know? And so. Hmm. All right. Well, we could talk forever. Thank you so much for joining us today. Abby, I think you have a little wrap up question that we love to hear the answer to. Yes. So it's kind of loaded. So if you need a second, that's fine. But taking yourself back to eating the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Oh, I don't have to wait to tell you that. I wish I I had known about intuitive eating. I mean, I wish I had known that there was another way to help people heal, that there was a way to help them tune back into that wisdom that they're born with, that's been so robbed from them, that it doesn't have to be an external force. Sure, there can be education. Sometimes people don't understand, you know, anything about food or nutrition. And sometimes I can put my nutritionist cap back on and, but mainly to help them understand that what's most important is that they are wise, that they internally, they're very wise. If they're well enough nourished, they can listen to their bodies and their bodies are going to guide them. So, mm-hmm. oh, do I wish I'd had that. On the other hand, that would have meant I wouldn't have read, written all of these books. Yeah, and I was going to say, I'm so grateful to that friend in your in your play group mm-hmm. who suggested that you get into nutrition because look what we have now. And I'm also glad that you brought this to us and brought your, your love of therapy and counseling and your knowledge of your own personal experience with orthorexia things that we didn't have a name for and intuitive eating is backed by hundreds of research 
articles, journals, practices. And so it's something for those of us in the eating disorders field that if you haven't heard of it, start to dabble in it, get to know it. It will help you with your clients. I mean, I've been in this field for almost 30 years and I've used the intuitive eating principles ever since they came out. And I just finished my certification, as I mentioned, and I'm really glad I did because you can use the principles and read the book and do that and even do supervision with it. But there is so much to this certification. We go through almost all of the, I mean, a lot of the research behind it. So And if someone really wants to just, I don't know, explore before they even get into any of the books, I have my own website. There's, there is an intuitiveeating.org website that has a lot of information on that, but I have a personal website and I have links to some podcasts I've done, other ones. This is not the only one. uh, Sorry. And some things I've written, some articles I've written, and I have my words of wisdom on there and some Mm -hmm. suggestions. But I think that people can get a sense. I put the history of intuitive eating on there and the, you know, just what my work is all about. And that might intrigue someone just you know, in an easy way, just go to my website. It's elisresh.com. I meant to highlight that because I was looking at your website and specifically the words of wisdom section is great. Even just like taking a little read through that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Any other ways, Elise, that we can get a hold of you or that other people can get a hold of you? Sure. So I, I'll give out my email. It's elisresh at gmail.com. If you want to write me, I have a commitment to a return emails I mean to respond to emails sometimes it's not in a day or so but I really have that commitment if someone takes the time to write to me I want to write them back Mm -hmm. and also I'm on Instagram and I'm not real clever on Instagram but I do post some things sometimes and so that's at Elise Resch I'm on Facebook I'm rarely on there but some things come out on there too and I'm on Twitter so it's all you know just with my name so yeah Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Elise. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.